Greetings, everyone. Thanks again to all of you who put up with the ads and keep coming back for more. This is the China History Podcast. I'm Laszlo Montgomery, and we're still in the Ming Dynasty. In our last episode, we got as far as the end of the Yongle era. The Yongle Emperor, also known as Ming Chengzu, he passed from the scene in 1424. So as we begin today, we're merely 56 years into a 276-year dynasty. 220 more years to go. So let's get started. The Yongle Emperor died on his fifth campaign in the north against the Mongols. His eldest son became the new emperor, and he immediately put the kibosh on Zheng He's extravagantly expensive voyages. The problem with this emperor was that he wasn't fated to live long. He became emperor in September 1424 and died of a heart attack May 29, 1425. Not exactly William Henry Harrison, but it didn't even last a year. And this is too bad, because in the short time that this Hongxi emperor sat on the throne, he undid a lot of the bad ideas of his father, the Yongle emperor, and instituted a whole bunch of new and needed reforms. And then his successor, his son, Zhu Zhanqi, was next on the throne and reigned as the Xuande emperor. And you may recall this emperor from the last episode as the one who called for one last voyage for Zheng He. And it was during this seventh voyage, the great eunuch admiral died. And it was also during the reign of the Xuande emperor that Ming China's misadventure in Vietnam came to a crashing end in 1427. Now, one of the last things the Hongxi emperor did before he up and died so suddenly was... He tried to move the capital of the empire from Beijing back to where it had come from, down in Nanjing. However, he died before this whole initiative can get some traction. And when the Xuande emperor got all settled in, he decided to stick with the Forbidden City rather than Nanjing down in the south. So the Xuande emperor, he stayed put in Beijing and... Other than the misadventure in Vietnam, which he inherited, by the way, it was a relatively peaceful time. The economy thrived, and the Xuande Emperor, being an accomplished painter and all, it was also a time when the arts thrived as well. He carried through all kinds of reforms and was able to keep the machinery of government running smoothly. His decade on the throne is considered the time when the Ming Dynasty peaked. Yeah, there's nothing like the early part of the dynastic cycle. But Chinese history has proved time and again, it never lasts. Shen De was followed by his son, who we know as the Zhengtong Emperor. Yes, he of the Tumu Crisis, or Tumu Zhibian. He was all of eight years old when he took the throne. And by this time, you had the Neige, or Grand Secretariat, or, or Privy Council. This office was established in 1426, and by now was heavily staffed and influenced by the eunuch faction. Let's talk a little about eunuchs, and then we'll get back to the Zhengtong Emperor and his infamous debacle at Tumu. Once again, I have a whole series on the history of Chinese eunuchs, starting with episode CHP 267, and I encourage you to go check that one out. One of the main characteristics of the Ming Dynasty particularly during the second half, was the rise and influence of the eunuchs and how they used their ways to pretty much take over the government. 
they were sort of, in a way, kind of like the president's White House staff. No one elected them. They were all appointed or got their positions due to connections. Their natural enemies were the bureaucracy. All the Confucian scholar bureaucrats, they did everything by the book and with a great degree of ritual and strict orthodoxy. And the eunuchs, well, they didn't have any past inspiration like Confucius or Mengzi. Problem all started during the time of Yongle. You see, his father, who founded the Ming Dynasty, but he made it clear from the very start that eunuchs were not to be educated and under penalty of death were not to meddle in politics. End of story. And then 50 years later, their tentacles were already on every single knob, lever, and switch on the entire government and military. How did they do this? The Ming emperors, starting with Yongle during his later years, became more and more autocratic. The more autocratic they became, the less they depended on, trusted, or cooperated with the normal channels of government. Rather than going through them, they just made the decisions unilaterally. But the emperor still needed enablers and facilitators to make this whole system work. And that's where the eunuchs came in. You see, the root of all their power rested on the position they held as the ones responsible for the person of the emperor. Not the laws or agricultural matters or anything scholarly. Their sole responsibility was the emperor personally, as well as his family and household. Anything that had to do with the emperor from who got to see him, what he ate, when he ate, and everything that he was all about. The eunuchs were the gatekeepers, advisors, go-betweens, and household managers. What did they do, actually? Well, for starters, they managed the palace guard, which by the time of the Xuande emperor had already evolved into a kind of secret police that was engaged in all manners of nefarious activities. They managed all the workshops and businesses that supplied everything there was to the emperor's household, as well as the steady flow of the exotic gifts presented to the emperor by visiting foreign tribute missions. When it came time to make military and civilian appointments, they had the emperor's ear for all of this. The eunuchs were also appointed directly by the emperor to head up trade and diplomatic missions to the various kingdoms of Southwest Asia and the Western Sea, a.k.a. the Indian Ocean. Most famously, of course, by Admiral Zheng He, so they managed quite a bit of what went on in the capital. Everything they did of course, being at the crossroads of all military and commercial wealth, involved a nice, generous portion of cream that was regularly skimmed off the tops of the thousands and thousands of day-in, day-out transactions involving the emperor and the imperial court. They got a piece of everything. And when I say they, I mean a very limited, privileged few at the very top of the pyramid. The -the run-of-the-mill eunuch? Eh, They were just all a bunch of working stiffs who just clocked in every day and mostly took care of mundane stuff. So during the Ming, you began to see the rise and unstoppable power of the eunuchs who rode on the backs of increasingly autocratic emperors who, more and more, came to distrust the legitimate government officials of the imperial government and in the provinces. In fact, by now, during the time of the Zhengtong Emperor, the Privy Council 
led by the most powerful eunuchs, had replaced the normal organs of government. And these two factions, the eunuchs and the Confucian elites and the government bureaucracy, they battled constantly and honestly couldn't stand each other for the threat that each posed to the other. And to top it all off, as an extra reason for mutual contempt, these eunuchs, by and large, were all northerners who came from a lower-class background and were hardly educated, and in fact, illiterate to a high degree. The civil servants were, for the most part, coming from families of literati who came from the lower Yangtze Valley and around Zhejiang province. So you also had a northerner versus southerner thing going on, educated versus uneducated, and of course, the ongoing competition to sway the emperor's decisions. Eunuchs ran the Privy Council as well as the Imperial Secret Police. During the Emperor Hongwu's era, you had the dreaded brocaded guards. And during the Yongle era, you had the equally dreaded and feared Eastern Esplanade. By 1465, there came into being the Red Horsemen of the Western Esplanade, who became the thugs, hitmen, agent provocateurs, and enforcers of the Imperial eunuchs. So let's look at the sixth Ming emperor, and I include Jianwen and Hongxi, even though certain revisionist emperors tried to write them out of the script. Zhu Qi Jun was born in 1427, six years after the capital was officially moved to Beijing, and he was the son of the Xuande emperor and became emperor as a child of eight years old. Now, if you were a eunuch working at the palace... This was the best-case scenario. It was easy enough for them to bend the mind and will of a full-grown adult. But an eight-year-old kid? As far as having a free hand to do whatever you wanted, I mean, what else could you possibly hope for? Enter Wang Chen. He was the chief eunuch under the Chengtong Emperor, and he called all the shots, every one of them. And he instigated what is known as the Tumu Crisis. The Oirats were Western Mongols, more from Central Asia than from the North. And for years, the Ming had been playing them off against their Eastern Mongol rivals. But after the Ming pulled in their horns in and around the end of the Yongle era, the Mongols started to smell blood and became very aggressive, testing the softness of the Ming Empire from the North. In the 1430s, these Western Mongols, now united under a strong and charismatic leader who had penetrated into Gansu, Xinjiang, and Shanxi, then in July 1449, after a bit of a diplomatic blow-up, the Oirats invaded northwest China with a force of 20,000 men. The Zhengtong Emperor, who fancied himself as a kind of conquering ruler, who never got his chance to get in on any battles, allowed himself to be manipulated by his chief eunuch. Wang Chun flattered him and whispered in his ear, Hey, you gotta go attack these guys, and it'd be great if you led the troops into battle yourself. And the emperor was 22 now, and his chief eunuch, Wang Chun, obviously had a very strong influence on him. So an army was amassed, and the Chengtong Emperor was at the head of a raggedy, untrained, hastily gathered force of half a million men. That was going to be 500,000 troops against 20,000 Oirat Mongols. 
So, should have been a turkey shoot, right? No, it ended up being a 28-day campaign, and here's how it went. Now, historians have picked this whole affair to the bone, and all generally agree this was a totally unplanned, poorly led, and ill-fated campaign. He had the emperor in charge, who in short, didn't know anything. And his number two was the chief eunuch, Wang Jun, who was simply detested and reviled by basically everyone. And this eunuch's baggage train alone was over a thousand wagons and had to be guarded at all times. The weather was horrible and it rained all the time. So the main idea was to engage the Oirat forces near Datong in the north of Shanxi province and push them back into the steppes north from where they came from. By August, the going was getting very rough, and the civil servants were all saying, maybe it's not the best idea to bring the emperor with us. But Wang Chun wouldn't hear it. He said, the emperor stays. On the way to Datong, the Ming forces passed the site of a battlefield littered with Chinese soldiers killed by the Oirat Mongol forces. And the Ming forces arrived in Datong on August 18th, and they were advised that to proceed further north and carry out this campaign into the steppes would be highly risky. Datong is in the extreme north of Shanxi province, but not too terribly far from the capital, Beijing. So the Ming generals and everyone in charge decided, well, the wisest course of action was simply to declare victory and start heading back to Beijing. So by August 30th, the army was in real bad shape from this march back to Beijing. And it was hardly this orderly march that you'd expect from a trained army. It had degraded down to an unorganized retreat. And then three days out from Beijing in northern Hebei, the Oirat Mongol army caught up with the Ming rear guard, which, as the story goes, was so burdened with Wang Chun's thousand wagons of whatever. So these guys were all picked off, as well as the 30,000 cavalry sent to support them. And then the next day, at a place called Tumu, the Ming army rested. It's still there today, about midway between Zhangjiakou and Beijing. They had no access to water and were just dying of thirst. Food had run out. They were so close to home. And now the Mongols were all over them. Dissension ran rampant in the ranks. Troops deserted or tried to defect. And the traveling officials insisted... It was best to send the emperor on his way back to the capital now with a guard. Wang Chun refused because he insisted to accompany the emperor. And as the story goes, he was more concerned about his baggage train that had not yet caught up to the front. And then on September 1st, the army awoke to the Mongols who had quietly surrounded them. Battle ensued, and when all was finished, about half the remaining Ming army was gone. Wang Chun was killed, most likely by his own people. And there was no shortage of soldiers, officers, and officials who wanted this guy dead. So he was gone, and the Mongols captured the emperor. This charismatic Oirat Mongol leader, Essen Khan, was incredulous that such a prize fell into his hands. The emperor of China. He led his army into battle, made every mistake that Sun Tzu probably warned against, and ended up getting taken as a prisoner 
of the Mongols. Esen Khan, who was the head of the Northern Yuan Dynasty, dreamed up every possible way to get some sort of benefit from this bargaining chip he held. But funny enough, he didn't have any luck in the utter confusion that was going on now in Beijing. So what followed was another classic Chinese imperial bloodbath. This time with the eunuchs on the receiving end. The aggressors were now the Confucian palace elites and their minions. And with Wang Jun out of the picture, the eunuch faction at the palace was hardly the menace they once were. So they just got annihilated. It's said Wang Chun was the scapegoat for this whole sorry affair, and his family was killed for five generations, including the children he had sired before he became a eunuch, which was done to further his career. The Mongols marched on Beijing, but they were unable to take the city. Then the alliance between the Oirats and their Mongol cousins in the east and north sort of fell apart, and they once again turned on each other, and Beijing was spared. The Tumu incident had been compared to the Anlushan Rebellion of the Tang Dynasty in that here was the clear dividing line, where henceforth it was all a slow, steady, downhill slide for the Ming Dynasty. The powers that be in the palace decided the best course of action was not to bargain with the Mongols and to install the emperor's brother to the throne. And this they did, so that Jingtai Emperor became the next son of heaven. And that, my friends, was the Tumu Incident of 1449. So other than having lost half their army to a force less than 10% its size, and the emperor getting captured and taken away, eh, it wasn't a bad campaign. But wait, it gets worse. A year later, with a new emperor on the throne, the old emperor got handed back to the Ming in China. Esen Khan, so frustrated in his attempts to gain anything from this nice bargaining chip, simply sent him back, asking for nothing in return. So one day, the Zhengtong emperor just showed up in the capital. Now there were two legitimate emperors, the Jingtai emperor, who was installed on the throne, and the newly arrived former emperor, Zhengtong. Now the Ming dynasty bounced back from this to a certain extent, thanks to some talented ministers in the government who managed to steer the Ming through this period of chaos and treachery. The new emperor, Jingtai, he was allowed to continue to reign. The Zhengtong emperor was kept as, well, as sort of a reserve emperor with a grand-sounding title. He was mostly closeted away and was sort of a living embarrassment. Actually, the Jingtai Emperor, wary of a potential rival, kept this Zhengtong Emperor under a form of house arrest. In 1457, when the Jingtai Emperor started to decline in health, the Zhengtong Emperor was brought back onto the throne, which pretty much made him the Grover Cleveland of the Ming Dynasty, seeing as how he had two different reigns as emperor non-consecutive. That would make the Jingtai Emperor the Benjamin Harrison of the story. The Jingtai Emperor had other plans as far as the successor went, but a little intra-palace skullduggery saw the palace officials literally walking in on the Zhengtong Emperor in his chambers, lifting him up on a sedan chair and bursting their way into the palace of the Emperor, and they unceremoniously plopped the old Emperor back on his old throne. So for this second regnal period, the name Tianshun was given. 
This Ming emperor is known as both the Zheng Tong and Tian Shun emperor. As for the ailing Jing Tai emperor, he died under mysterious conditions a month later. And to rub salt in the wound, the Tian Shun emperor, as he was called now, wouldn't even allow his brother, the Jing Tai emperor, to be buried in the sacred Ming tombs. For the crime of leaving him to the Mongols, the Tian Shun emperor had his brother buried somewhere else, and, and then he had him severely demoted in rank as well. The Tian Shun emperor died in 1467. All this excitement packed into only 37 years. So he passed from the scene and got entombed honorably with his Ming ancestors. And then next up was the emperor's son, who becomes the Chenghua emperor. What is there to say about this teen emperor except that the eunuchs made their comeback under his reign and the worst autocratic measures to date were seen? The secret police was enhanced and became a terror no less than the Gestapo, Cheka, or Securitate was in their day. He reigned for 23 years before he died at the age of 40, and his son took over as the Hongzhi Emperor. The Hongzhi Emperor was one of those rare breed of monogamous Chinese emperors who had only his one empress, and that was it. No concubines. Finally... They had a good, hard-working, no-nonsense emperor on the throne. The Hongzhi emperor, almost but not quite, is mentioned in the same breath as his ancestors, the Hongwu and Yongle emperors. He kept the eunuchs reined in, and for his almost 18 years in the top spot, the country caught a breather. He was the last good emperor of the Ming dynasty. His son took over from him, and since there were no concubines involved, there were no potential successors or rivals to the remaining son of the Hongzhi emperor and his empress. So enter Zheng De. Close your eyes and think of Caligula. That's what this emperor was, a total wastrel who neglected his duties, spent long periods away from the palace, traveling around with his entourage, spending lavish amounts of money, and he left everything in the hands of eunuchs, who were only too happy to oblige. One eunuch in particular, next up in this rogues gallery going back to the Qin dynasty eunuch Zhao Gao, was Liu Qin. He really made a name for himself and was immortalized in the history books thanks to the magnitude of his corruption and the wealth he amassed and the fortune he spent, not to mention the manner of capital punishment meted out on him in the end. Now, Liu Qin was the head of the Bahu, or Eight Tigers. These were the eight most powerful eunuchs who ran everything that went on during the reign of the Zhengde Emperor. Now this guy had a great run, and to go down in the annals of Chinese history as one of the most corrupt government people of all time must have meant his scale of skimming off the top would have ranked right up there with the best. In fact, in 2001, the Asian Wall Street Journal ran a story that named Liu Qin as one of the wealthiest persons in the past 1,000 years. Why else is the chief eunuch Liu Qin also famous? Eh, well, he was caught committing treason in 1510, and his punishment was the infamous death by a thousand cuts. Yes, the Ling Chir. Liu Qin was not the first. When the executioner took that first slice off the former head of the Eight Tigers in 1510, this punishment had already been around for half a millennium. 
What it was, for those wishing to know, was death by slow slicing. Liu Jin was given a total of 3,357 cuts over three days. Now, he was given 3,300 cuts, but he allegedly died on the second day after the 300th or 400th cut. It's said that bits of his flesh was then being sold on the streets of Beijing outside the palace and being consumed with rice wine. Since antiquity, China has led the world in constructing the most intricate and elaborate timekeeping and astronomical devices. So I wanted to tell you about one luxury watch brand, Atelier Wen. They demonstrate high-quality Chinese design and craftsmanship in a single timepiece. And their watches celebrate Chinese culture and craftsmanship. Atelier Wen works with China's best designers and craftsmen of today to bring their collection of beautiful luxury watches proudly made in China. Atelier Wen's perception watch model draws from the exquisite geometries found in traditional Chinese architecture. Each dial is individually hand-cut by China's only Guilloche master craftsman, Cheng Yutai, who engineered his rose engine machine himself. Due to its complexity, it takes a master craftsman around eight hours to cut one dial. And there were no guilloche machines in China before, and Master Chung had to figure out how to build one without access to any Western prototypes or drawings. Check out AtelierWen.com to view their collections and to learn more about Chinese watchmaking. You can mention the CHP at checkout to let them know we sent you. That's A-T-E-L-I-E-R-W-E-N dot com to see their impressive collections. The Atelier Wen Perception Watch will make a special gift for yourself or for someone passionate about fine, unique watches. Anyways, there's all kinds of interesting and gruesome material on the internet if you want to learn more. This is a family program, so we don't want to get into too much detail. It's said they hauled about 450,000 kilos of gold and 9.7 million kilos of silver from his compound, which at today's extremely high precious metal prices would get him into the Forbes 400 for certain. So Liu Jin, he met a vile end, and perhaps a fitting end, depending on how you look at it. Well, the Zhengde Emperor, being a Caligula type and all, There are no shortage of stories about what went on during his almost 16-year reign. But seeing how this is an overview and all, let's not get bogged down in the zaniness and carnage. The other important thing that happened in the Ming Dynasty during the reign of the Zhengde Emperor was the arrival in 1513 of Jorge Alvarez and Rafael Perestrello, who worked for the Portuguese trading empire of Alfonso de Albuquerque. They traded with the locals and had a skirmish with Ming Dynasty forces down in the south in Tun Moon in Hong Kong, and also up the Pearl River Delta a piece near Guangzhou. Relations had been stop and start between Portugal and China, but this mission ultimately led to the deal with China in 1557 that ceded Macau to Portugal, which was to be used as their sole trading base. And the next emperor was one of the more famous ones, and we mentioned him already, the Jiajing Emperor. He was the Zhengde Emperor's cousin. This emperor began ruling at the age of 14 and reigned for 45 years. 
very long as Chinese imperial reigns go. Let's just dive right into the great, let's just dive right into the great rights controversy of 1521 to 1524. Okay, as I said, this new emperor was not the direct descendant of the deceased emperor. The new 14-year-old emperor was a cousin, and his father was the brother to the Hongzhi emperor. The Hongzhi emperor, remember, the one who didn't keep any concubines? He had two sons, of which only one survived, and he became the Zhengde emperor. And then this crown prince died in 1521. So custom dictated that the imperial line of succession could not be broken, and in order to keep everything in line with the established ways, the new Jiajing emperor had to be adopted by the deceased Zhengde emperor, and then he, as custom dictated, the new Jiajing emperor would honor the deceased emperor as a son would a father. Then all was okay. The line was not broken. Eh, There was always a workaround. This was the way the Confucianists got around that small problem. Now, a 14-year-old emperor, everyone thought, eh, it would be easy to manipulate. Not so with this emperor. He had his own thinking about this whole matter. His thinking was simple. All he had to do was make his natural father emperor posthumously, and the whole matter was solved. A seemingly innocuous matter could not be so easily resolved. The Confucianist officials had made somewhat of a comeback, and their prestige in the Ming Dynasty now had never been higher. So it wasn't so easy to dismiss their insistence to have it their own way. So this matter of the emperor insisting to honor his natural parents and the court officials saying he had to do it according to the Confucian rites was the root of this controversy. The emperor won, of course, and all those who tried to line up against him were banished, or executed, or worse, And things were never the same after that between the emperor and the Confucian elites. Like his predecessor, this emperor had no love for the actual work involved in being the chief executive. He mostly lived outside the Forbidden City and had his trusted prime ministers handle everything for him. And this, of course, is a recipe for disaster since it was an open invitation for corruption. The Jiajing Emperor was autocratic and couldn't take any criticism or challenge to his authority in any way. And he left everything mainly in the hands of his chief grand secretary, Yan Song, who was another rogue from Chinese history, known for his cruelty, vices, and corrupt, self-serving ways during this controversial Ming Emperor's reign. There was, however, a loyal official the department secretary to the Ministry of Revenue, a guy who hailed from Hainan by the name of Hai Rei, well known for his devotion to the emperor. He did a bold thing one day and wrote a memorial to the Jiajing emperor, requesting him to be more open to advice from his ministers. He further said everyone at the imperial court was so scared to say anything, fearing the retribution that may come from his majesty's displeasure. And... There's a famous story that goes along with this, that when he presented this memorial to the Jiajing emperor, he dragged in a coffin with him, saying that, I'm going to speak honestly with you, and I brought along my coffin since I know you're going to kill me. Often, good advice was just being bottled up, fearing the consequences. And this loyal minister, Hai Rei, spoke up to the Jiajing emperor, and for this, he was thrown into prison and languished there until the emperor died in 1567. And he went on to also serve uh, the next two emperors, Long Qing and Wan Li. 
Now, this is important because 400 years later, there was a play written about High Ray, who historians had held up as a model of the quintessential, honest, loyal, and dedicated civil servant. The play, written by the great modern historian, writer, and vice mayor of Beijing, Wuhan, came out in 1961 and was called Hai Rei Dismissed from Office. Hai Rei Bakuan. Five years later, in 1966, and 400 years after it actually happened, one of the Gang of Four, Yao Wenyuan, lashed out at Wuhan and his play and claimed that the whole thing was simply an allegory of Chairman Mao's dismissal of the loyal marshal, Peng De Huai, who dared to speak up to Mao at the Lushan Conference against his excesses in the Great Leap Forward. Hai Rei was compared to Peng De Huai, and Mao, of course, was the evil Jiaqing Emperor, dismissing his loyal official. So believe it or not, this was one of the sparks that ignited the whole cultural revolution. So the Jiaqing Emperor, no friend of the Confucianists, didn't like to get involved in daily affairs and left everything in the hands of those he trusted. And his chief guy, Yan Song, pretty much ran things for 17 of the 45 years this emperor stayed on the throne. This long-reigning emperor was completely into Taoism and involved himself in all kinds of Taoist practices, and, well, he wasn't the first emperor to ingest all kinds of elixirs of life that might give him immortality. These elixirs included the menstrual blood of young girls, powdered excrement of young boys, and I'm sure all kinds of other dubious concoctions. In October 1542, there was a plot carried out by his concubines to assassinate him in his sleep. He was a cruel and brutal emperor and apparently didn't treat his concubines well. So there was a plot to strangle him in his sleep that ultimately failed and all of those involved in the assassination plot were given the same fate as the eunuch Liu Jin, the death of a thousand cuts. And you know how it was in China back in those days. The families of the plotters were, of course, also killed. Let's jump to 1556 to the Hua Xian Da Di also known as the Jia Jing Da Di Jun. January 23rd, 1556. The deadliest earthquake in recorded history took place. On land, that is. In Western history books, this event was known as the Shanxi Earthquake of 1556. Its epicenter was in Hua County in Shanxi Province. This is about an hour and a half east of the ancient capital, Xi'an, by car. This is the famous earthquake. I'm sure you've seen it at the top of these lists of the worst natural disasters of all time. Approximately 800 to 850,000 people died in this shocker. The destruction was incredible. A lot of people back then were still living in these Yaodong, which were these, essentially, these, these little dugout caves carved into the less hills. Loess or less is this sediment that blows in from the Gobi Desert that sort of builds up over time and hardens. It's not very strong, but it's very convenient to live in. Think of a substance that's part stone and part sponge. Not exactly like that, but I think you get the idea. You had this whole plateau called the Les Plateau, the Huangtu Gaoyuan, and it covered 640,000 square kilometers, almost a quarter million square miles, stretching from Gansu, Ningxia, Shanxi, and Shanxi. People just 
carved a home out of this material and moved right in. In this earthquake, these Yao Dong collapsed easily, killing everyone inside, and this is how a lot, if not most, of the people died. The earthquake was so violent that the earth was actually splitting, and where there were valleys, suddenly it became a mountain, and vice versa. Rivers suddenly changed course and caused massive and sudden flooding. Of the entire region that was affected by the earthquake, which was a total of 98 counties over an area of about 520 square miles, 60% of the population died. To give you a rough idea how deadly this event was, it was estimated, I don't know how, but this is what's said, that the earthquake was an 8.0 on the Richter scale. Although the shocks were felt beyond the epicenter into many provinces, the greatest amount of death and destruction were in the two provinces of Shanxi and Shanxi. Now this, you'd think, would be a harbinger of the end of the dynasty. Something this massive surely made everyone think about whether the mandate of heaven was ready to pick up and move elsewhere. But there were still 88 years left in the Ming dynasty until the sad and tragic ending in 1644. A couple other things we should mention regarding the Jiajing era. The Portuguese were really making inroads into China. They were really the first Westerners to get in good with the imperial government. In 1557, as I mentioned earlier, Macau was given to the Portuguese as a trading base. They had been there since 1535 when Macau's port was used as a place to weigh anchor. No one was permitted on shore, but they were allowed to sail their ships there to rest. Then in 1552, they were given permission to build storage facilities on shore to warehouse goods. And finally, in 1557, they were given formal permission to establish a permanent settlement on Macau with a rent of 500 tails of silver per year. It's not very well known, but the Portuguese traded for a while in Chinese slaves, which were prized in the New World as well as in Portugal. This practice didn't last long and was outlawed in China in 1595 and in Portugal in 1624. So now you have the Portuguese down in Macau and they'll use that as their base not only for trading but for spreading the Catholic faith into China. And in the next episode we'll look at Matteo Ricci, the Jesuit priest who did so much work in Chinese studies as well as trying to establish the church in China. Before we go, let's look at a couple more significant personages from this period in Ming history. First, let's mention Qi Ji Guang. I did a whole episode on him, CHP 230, if you want to go check that out. General Qi left his mark on Ming Dynasty China as the one who finally rid the China coast of the curse of the Japanese pirates. This had been a problem for centuries, and these Japanese pirates were unstoppable. They caused all kinds of grief along China's coast, in Shandong, Jiangsu, Zhejiang, and Fujian. They were called Wokou in Mandarin, and Wakou in Japanese. Portuguese joined in on the fight against the Wokou, and played a supporting role in pushing the Japanese, and also Chinese pirates, out of these pirate lairs. As an encore to his achievement against the Japanese pirates, Qi Ji Guang was sent up north to deal with the Mongols. And it was he who gave the Great Wall, especially near Beijing, a total makeover. And he had these battlements built, spaced out throughout 
the entirety of the wall, over a thousand of these battlements that gave the Great Wall of China that look that we're most familiar with. If you ever go to Fujian, you can eat what's called a guangbing. That's a nice little palm-sized cake with a hole in the center. The story goes that in 1562, when Chi Chi Guang was leading his troops against the Japanese and Fujian, the local people made these cakes with a hole in the center that could be sort of all strung together and carried in bulk by the soldiers. So to commemorate Chi Chi Guang's spectacular victory against the pirates, this bing, or cake, was named after him, and it's still enjoyed today. So don't forget to have yourself a guang bing next time you're in Fujian. Last but not least, we can't not mention Wang Yangming, a giant, if there ever was one, in the field of Neo-Confucian philosophy. Aside from being a successful general, and one of the first to use these newfangled breech-loading culverin cannon that the Portuguese had brought to China, he was mainly known for his contributions to Neo-Confucianism. Among his chief teachings was the idea of innate knowledge, and that all people were born with the knowledge between good and evil. He said this knowledge was intuitive rather than rational. Wang Yangming had said in his teachings and writings that the world does not shape the mind, but rather the mind gives reason to the world. The mind alone is the source of all reason, and that man had an innate moral goodness and understanding of what is good. So Wang Yangming, he was the fourth of the four great masters of Confucianism. The other three, of course, being Confucius, Mengzi, and Zhu Xi. Zhu Xi, of course, the great philosopher who we mentioned in the episode of the Southern Song Dynasty. So the four great masters in Mandarin are referred to as Kong Meng, Zhu Wang, Kongzi, Mengzi, Zhu Xi, and Wang Yangming. Taiwan listeners will know Yangming Shan up in the north of Taipei. That mountain and that area is named for this great Ming Dynasty philosopher. And we'll close with the death of the Jia Jing Emperor, he who hated his job and left the lovers of government in the hands of others. Some good, some bad, and some real bad, like Yen Song. He died in 1567 after 45 years and 241 days on the throne. You'd think with this long of a reign, he'd be the champion of the Ming Dynasty as far as longest reigning emperors went. But next episode, we'll look at his grandson, the Wanli Emperor, who reigned a total of 48 years. It's said this Taoist and pleasure-loving Jia Jing Emperor died of mercury poisoning ingested in one of the many elixirs of life he consumed, chasing the same dreams of... Ponce de Leon, and also Qin Shi Huang. The Jia Jing Emperor ruled a long time, and there was relative peace during his time, but the dynasty was in decline, and his failure to show leadership to revive things kept the Ming Dynasty on a slow and steady course towards extinction. And next time in Part 4 of this overview of the Ming Dynasty, they'll be washed away from power. So that's going to be it for today. Foolish me, thinking I was going to be able to cram 220 years into this episode. By this time in Chinese history, so much is happening so fast, and so much of history was recorded by this time. And it's not like the Bronze Age dynasties when who knows what is fact and fiction, and we could cover whole dynasties in a single podcast episode. 
But we managed to get through 130 years today, so not bad. We'll pick up next week where we will finish off the Ming in 1644 and take a close look at how the Manchus rode in from the north and swept the Ming from power and established the last dynasty of China. That's all for next time. For now, this is your humble narrator, Laszlo Montgomery, bidding you once again a fond farewell from the lovely little town of Los Angeles, California. Stay well, everyone, and we'll see you next week, I hope, for another exciting episode of the China History Podcast.